gotta throw my cell phone out Gotta put the laptop down Can't I read another word? I'm leaving
and welcome again to Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Professor and the Madman, Time Machine Man with Nothing to Lose from their forthcoming album, Seance. I've got the great pleasure to welcome Professor and the Madman drummer, Ratscabies, here today on the Strange Brew. Ratscabies known for many, many other things as well, um, especially the Damned, who he uh, played with for quite a time. Welcome, Rat. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. It's a pleasure to see you. And you. Do you want to tell me about that album and how it was put together and who was involved? Well, the two main protagonists are um, Alfie and Sean. It's their band and their kind of project. And they write the tunes and do all of that stuff. And yeah. I met them at a party in California a few years ago. We just got on pretty good and they invited me round to Alfie's house to just sort of hang out and I played some drums on a track for them and then went back to England and then they sort of said, hey, you know, with this internet thing, we can record you remotely. So that was really how the whole thing sort of started. So I generally, you know, because we can't afford the visas and actually, you know, go into America and record and all of that. So we just, um, they send me the files, which of course is, the loneliness of the long distance drummer because it, it ends up just being me and, and an engineer in a studio and uh, the engineers there that's not their job to tell you whether it's any good or not their job is to make sure that what you do gets recorded so i've been quite lucky with the engineers where i can generally tell from their expression whether it works or not you know <laughs> so yeah so that's how we've done pretty much all of the stuff really so yeah they send me the files i sit there i play the drums and then, you know, I'm in the dark about, because there were no lyrics on this album, wouldn't they? Oh, okay. Most of it was just Sean going, la, 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 you know, mumbling at me down a <laughs> microphone. So it was, um, I didn't even know it was a concept album until Randy told me. The sound of, of the record, it's got a bit of that late 60s. There's always a bit of a damned element to it as well. And I get Paul, Paul Gray's on that as well on the album as well, isn't he? He is indeed, he is. And the last one. Yeah. Alfie and Sean are very big Damned fans. Mm. And their favourite period of the Damned was, you know, the Black Album, Strawberries, when, you know, Paul and I were working together on it. And he, um, they, rather, sort of got me to do the drums and then they very nervously said, hey, you know what, we'd really like Paul to do the bass. You know, what do you think? So. Mm. You know, it's um, it's their album. You know, they can have whoever they want on it. It's not my place to say yes or no to somebody. But actually, secretly, I was I was quite pleased because you know, it was sort of rebuilding bridges, and I hadn't heard from Paul for a long, long time, and and so that it actually did turn into quite a good sort of doorway to renewing our acquaintance because we ended up doing one show in London, and it was the first time I'd seen Paul in you know I don't know fifteen twenty years or something. So it was quite, yeah. you know, so it was good to see him and play with him because, you know, you kind of forget how good people are. <laughs> when we were playing, it was kind of like, yeah, I remember this guy now, you know, this was, this was all right. The next track is Space Walrus, which is from the Disintegrate Me album, also from Professor and the Madman. So Paul was on that as well. Yeah. You know, my only condition is, is that they don't have any drum machines on them or other drummers. Because mm. I find that it really affects the way I play and also it, it's already built the framework whereas I may sort of want to play a verse differently to the way they programmed it but if there's a drum machine already go boom shit boom boom shit you know I don't 
it's much harder for me to do something different and new when it's already been put in there like that. So that's kind of my only criteria is no, like they can have a click track. That's as good as it gets, really. You're not putting a straight jacket in terms of what to play. You, you have that freedom to... Oh, bless them, yeah. They let me do anything I want. I think because they are damn fans, a lot of it's sort of very instinctive anyway. I know where they're coming from with it. Six, five, four, three, two, one.
the first British punk single, New Rose, which is just, uh, even now, uh, such a vital track. What was it like at the time, you know, in that sort of London scene? Is it is it kind of how it's often portrayed, where you were all on the dole and oh, yeah. scratching around in bands? And... Oh, yeah, no, we were. We always signed on at Listen Grove in Paddington. And then we'd um, go around to uh, Skydog Records, which was a local record shop, and uh, stand there reading Punk Magazine, because they, you know, we got to know them, and they used to get Punk Magazine. And it was like the only sort of record shop in London where they knew who Iggy Pop was, or the Stooges, or the MC5, and all of those bands that were kind of, yeah. I suppose, not our total reference point, but certainly Brian's reference point, what came before he did. That was the time when Brian was writing all the material. Yeah. It was he just bringing the, the songs and then you were just playing to Yeah. Them. Yeah, it was pretty much that basic. He, he said, I've got this, or, you know, they weren't all finished. There was mm. bits that went in at like the beginning of New Rose. He got New Rose, but didn't really know how to start it. So I just went, oh, yeah, I'll do that, this drum thing, and that'll do it. <laughs> little did I know it was very poor you know we didn't have any money we were on the dole and what we did have was we really needed to do something and we really wanted to do that so I, funnily enough I was just talking to somebody about the drum sound on New Rose which was I mean everyone says wow what a great drum sound but it was the, you know I couldn't afford a real drum kit so I got the cheapest one I could find I couldn't afford to have skins at the top and the bottom so they only had single things you know the symbols i used were whatever i could find lying around or was second hand you know it was captain didn't even have like a fender bass it was like a shaftsbury copy or something and you know brian had a gibson he was kind of whoa but we didn't have high watt amps we had sound city amps you know it was before we actually you know, when we made the album, we hadn't sort of really turned pro. So a lot of that sound on that record is, is a sort of testimony to the engineer in the studio because it's, they made it, and Nick Lowe, of course, you know, making it sound great. But actually most of it was about sort of cheap and nasty. <laughs> the sound of that record, even, even with the instruments and everything that you played, it's, it's just magic. It's weird, isn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah. the bass sound on Neat, 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 it's still one of, you know, yeah, it's just like classic. How do, every time I hear it, it's kind of like wow, that's <laughs> that's great. And but yeah, it, I think it goes to show, you know, that you, well, I don't know what it goes to show really. I think just to, if you get a combination of people in a room, mm. then you can get, a, you know, you can get a, an amazing result. And you know, I never ever in my wildest dreams thought that. I don't know how many years later it is now, even 40 years or over 40 years later, anybody would still be interested in talking about New Rose. It was, you know, it was supposed to be disposable. It was pop music, you know, it wasn't meant to be preserved or held up as an icon. It was just a bunch of kids on the dole just chancing their arm. Is she really going out with him?
got a feeling inside of me It's kind of strange, like a story scene I don't know why, I don't know why I guess these things have got to be I've got a new rose, I've got a good Yes, I knew that I always would I can't stop to mess around I got a brand new rose in town See the sun, see the sun it shines Don't get too close or it'll burn your eyes Don't you run away that way You can come back another day I've got a new rose, I've got a good Yes, I knew that I always would I can't stop to mess around I got a brand new rose in town I never thought this could happen to me Oh, this is strange Oh, why should it be? I don't deserve somebody this great great singles from that early period of, of the damned was uh, problem child yeah and, and, and i think that was d- d- down as a, a, a co-write with brian yeah well i think we had the classic problem of a lifetime to write the first album and a month to write the second hmm. and once we'd done that you know it was just that brian had always written everything and so when it got to that phase he was beginning to open up to other people doing things because we didn't really have many alternatives. It was all right, but you know, we'd never written anything before. You know, when we did Music for Pleasure, I remember sitting with the captain saying, and holding the guitar and saying, it's on there somewhere. <laughs> what you've got to do is move your fingers at the right time and you can do it, you can write music. It's not, if it sounds like a song, then it is a song, you know, and that you didn't necessarily have to be trained to do it so were you doing the the lyrics or were you involved with the music side at that point? lyrics i'm afraid were more my thing on that one yeah i can't remember where i got it i think i got it off some movie or something but yeah it was um it was it was really in, enlightening you know to suddenly discover that something you'd done actually did get recorded and did get released it was quite a you know, a dream state in a lot of ways. Because, you know, when you're signing on and doing all of that thing and kipping on people's floors and couches, when you're doing all of that, it's beyond your wildest dreams that you'd ever Mm. be able to make a record, let alone get paid for playing and you'd be able to survive out of it. It was, like I say, it was a dream 
it did become a reality. And I think yeah. it so fast that nobody really knew whether they, well, I certainly didn't know whether I liked it or not. I wasn't sure if it was a good thing or a bad thing. How did working with Nick Mason, drummer for Floyd, compare with uh, Nick Law on those uh, first couple of albums? Did they just both give you the freedom? Yeah, pretty much. Nick Lowe was yes and no to takes. That was where I think his real mastery on it was, was that he knew the difference. You know, he knew when you could do a better version of something and he knew to say, no, we'll move on and to try that one again. You know, so I think that was his thing. And Nick Mason pretty much just let us get on in the same way and just let us do what we wanted to. And he just sift through the takes and say, okay, because his thing really was... It was very Pink Floyd in terms of his sound quality. What the band were kind of looking for, I think, were, you know, a Sid Barrett psychedelic, lots of echo and weird things going on and editing and stuff like that. <laughs> but actually, you know, Nick didn't really go there with any of that, even though he was taking acid along with the rest of them in the 60s. So he was just a psychedelic, I think. But you know, he let us run our course. And I think that really was the smart move. Because I think if he'd have influenced anything or got in the way or changed anything or did that, you know, I, I think he would have just got the blame for sort of messing with a punk band. <laughs> Somebody like Hans Zimmer, who has a totally, totally, totally different approach to the way you work. 
you know, in retrospect, it's quite interesting how actually the difference between working with, say, Nick Lowe, uh, where we just went in and played, and then the difference between Hans Zimmer, where suddenly his methods and his view of how to create records and make records was much more concise and, and deliberate. Mm. And it was quite amazing, really, how quickly you sort of... Well, how quickly I felt, I don't know if the others did, but I immediately thought, right, this is the way this guy wants to do it. This is another way of doing it. Look, I haven't done before. We haven't tried before. So, okay, let's let's go where he wants us to go and see what comes out. Yeah. Was it History of the World, which uh, Hans Zimmer, you worked with him on? Well, and the Black Album as well. He did right, yeah, the whole... Curtain yeah. Cool thing, that was a lot to do with Hans. Where was he in terms of his career at the time? Was he, was he known or...? He'd do anything for 50 quid then, I think. <laughs> he just, I think he'd produced the Radiators from Space and a couple of other small bands. Right. And he was, and he'd been in Buggles as oh, well. Okay. That was his other, that was his real big claim to fame. But he was pretty much an impoverished musician come producer when we got home. So he brought more ideas to the table. I guess that was a good time for you as a band anyway, because you were naturally kind of evolving anyway. And the tech had changed. All of a sudden there were right. synthesizers were much more readily fashionable. And um, we knew that we should sort of work with it. And he was really good at that. That was his whole background, was coming from electronica. And also in a studio sense, you know, because this was pre-samplers, but he could set up a sequencer, you know, that we could play with it. And at the same time, he'd also be able to set up tape loops mm. with Corwin's tape on spools just shredded around the uh, <laughs> studio. Thank you. 
like to to play the uh, the album version which mash it up because i'd like to play parts one and part two which um show the collaborative way that the band was working at the time and the, and how you to you know you'd have a, a different take on the song yeah it was a time when we began to sort of be fed up with being viewed as a as a three chord punk band mm. and um we wanted to develop and stretch a bit more musically we wanted to we got bored with that so we we it was important that we did and and really it just took this sort of um having the nerve to say you know what we can do that and if people don't like it too bad but the criteria was only ever whether we liked it or not and if we liked it then it went on the record and we were very lucky that our audience was growing at the same rate that we were and they were just as ready for a change and a slightly different thing going on musically than had been before. And so I, I think, you know, well, the two always have to go hand in hand, but I think we were just very lucky that we were the same as the punters. <laughs> Thank you. 
And that seemed to what sustained the damned through the 80s was that that shifting sound and, and not staying the same. So by the time you get to Strawberries and a track like Generals, you were kind of bringing a bit more of that electronic element into there and again, an evolving sound. Yeah, I think so. The band was, was always the lucky ball and chain, really. Somehow we always, we'd sort of do something and then we'd stop and then we wouldn't have a record deal or the manager would have run off with all the money or, or whatever was going on. And so we'd sort of, go away and then but somehow we'd always sort of gravitate back to being in the damned again hmm. and with that we would always look for a new deal or a new thing and it was pretty much because that was what we did we played music none of us could get a day job anywhere <laughs> you know i still couldn't get a job stacking shelves in morrison's <laughs> it's <laughs> you know and you can't imagine dave rainey and really doing yeah. much else or captain comes to that or brian you know it's Mm. you know it's one of my things I go and see a band and I look at the band and I try and imagine what their day job is <laughs> and if you can't think of the day job then you know that actually yeah they really should be up there because they've got nothing else so it provides that extra drive for you it's like you've got that impetus to keep on releasing material and keeping playing live yeah and don't forget you're still developing and learning to yeah. play so each record, you know, you take a little bit more knowledge into the studio. It's how it probably worked. Or more beer or less beer, one of the two, you know. There was always something going on. Big city, old scratched house, revenge is not so sweet. Once proud, once sold about.
by the time you get to the mid eighties, there's that, that gothic element definitely really coming in. You know, with uh, the, the album Phantasmagoria, tracks like Sanctum Sanctorum. Was that Dave's vision for the, for the band at the time? I I don't know if it was Dave's because Dave has always been Dave. You know, he didn't have to yeah. buy a new shirt or anything to you know to make Phantasmagoria. So that was you know I, I think that was. A very logical thing for us to do. Captain had been doing Happy Talk and really just didn't have the time to be in the damned anymore. And Roman had been around with us for quite some time playing keyboards and bits of guitar here and there. So we did the Young Ones TV show and it was a horror episode. And I just remember us all standing there and it was the first time we'd ever been uniform, you know, whereas the whole thing about the damned kind of up until then was it was always about four individuals with four different dress sense styles, four different. Yeah. But at that point, we just looked at each other and it was like, because it was a TV show, we were all dressed all in black, we had white paint on and, and that stuff. And I looked at it and it was like, why haven't we done this before? Yeah. It's, it just, it was a duh. <laughs> this is, and it was just quite obvious it was going to work. And Roman was very in tune with that as well. And he and I had been working a lot together. Bless him, you know, he had some great ideas. And he, it's Dave Vaney and he's the front man. Let's support that instead of fighting against it. And that reflected very much in, in the album we made. Because I remember when John Kelly, the producer, mm. when we went into our first sort of day in the studio with him, he sort of said, well, you know, what kind of sound do you, do you want? And I remember saying, I'd, I'd like it to sound like ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, yeah, get out of that. Because you know? <laughs> it's so unquantifiable. But actually, the last time I listened to the record and I listened to his production on it, he really did kind of, it has a very kind of eerie sort of hollowness to it. It's almost a trans, almost a translucent sound. It isn't, but it it, it is. And at the time I remember thinking, oh, it's a, it's a bit weird, isn't it? The drums should be a bit punchier and a bit more, you know, but it all sounded great, but it was just like, hmm, I'm not used to this. And that <laughs> But, you know, yeah, that's what he did. And that was kind of the, the mood of the band. And it just all fell into place the way we should look. The album title Dave just came up with. And it was like, yeah, this just keeps getting better.
in this period, you um, kind of became pop stars with your cover of Eloise. And my daughter is named Eloise after that song. And oh, wow. uh, <laughs> you basically took the original and, and kind of dusted it off for the 80s and, and added that gothic sound. Uh, whose idea was it to remake that song? In the very first interview the band ever did in Sniffing Glue, Dave says, one day I want to record Eloise. Wow. And um, I remember we'd done the album, we'd recorded the record, and we decided we wanted to do it. And there was some kind of contractual thing with the record company, and we were out of contract. And uh, there was quite a big kerfuffle, and so we, everybody seemed to think it was a really good idea. So we went in and recorded it anyway. But that was then the classic irony, you know, the one thing that you do that's an absolute can of worms to start off with becomes the biggest success. Mm. But it was a lot of fun, all of that. The rock star life, you turn up at airports and everybody knows who you are, you get shown into lounges, you get cars come and pick you up and take you and deliver and you get a very big sense of diminished responsibility because you don't have any responsibility because you're too busy talking to people, you know, it's like, it's like roadies. You don't have roadies because you're lazy and you don't want to move stuff. It's because actually it's more cost effective to have you talking to the press mm. and the media than it is to have you setting up a drum kit. So there's a lot of kind of rock star traits that go with it that aren't really that rock star. They're actually because it's a cost effective thing for management or it makes, so, you know, if a car comes to pick you up, you're definitely going to be there. <laughs> Whereas if you say I'll meet you at the airport, there's a good chance you're going to be late, or you forget your passport. You do, you know, it's kind of all of those things pile up on you. I suppose I don't know. It's boring. Every night I'm there. I'm always there. She knows I'm there. And heaven knows I hope she goes I find it hard To realize that love was in her eyes It's dying now She knows I'm crying now And every night I'm there I break my heart to please The sun that makes the day But lights the way And when that star goes by I hold it in my hands and cry Her love was mine You know my sun will shine And every night I'm there I break my heart to please
her I'd like to care But she's not there And when I'd find you Want to stay? I know you stay. mid-90s and you split with Dave and left the damned and did that just give you the freedom to even more freedom to kind of do what you want because you know since then over the last uh, 20-25 years you've played on so many different projects and and different sounds. At that point you know we'd been there we'd done it and I'd sort of tried to resurrect the band with a new lineup and, and stuff and it was okay but it wasn't we weren't really all headed in the same direction. And I think Dave mm. wanted to make more of the fans from chords and, and that mm. stuff. And I really didn't want to watch, you know, I really didn't want to be in a band and watch it just get smaller. And, uh, you know, the, that last lineup with Chris Dollymore and Moose was, you know, it was a great band. I mean, I really enjoyed working with them and playing the songs, but we hadn't come up with the album that had a, another Nero's or smash it up on it or an Eloise, you know, we hadn't come up with a hit record. So Mm. it was, again, we were in a position where we didn't really have a proper record company. You know, I was managing the band and it was, it just was like, you know what, we've had a really good run on this. We had the limousines and the airports and let's keep it there. And I'd always rather remember it as being that a great fun thing that was a lot of success. 
as opposed to being something that was gradually diminishing and turning into something a bit half-hearted. Yeah. So. And just to get a bit more up to date, do you want to tell me about um, the the band, uh, the Mutants that you've played with? Was that with Chris? Constantinou. <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah, well, the Mutants was a, you know, it was a bit of a concept, really, of, about cities. And the first one we did was sort of London and punk rock and ska. And, and then the second one we did was a Tokyo album and we had that, where we worked with the five, six, seven, eights and Guitar Wolf and... And then the third one we did was a desert album where we went out to Joshua Tree with Dave Catching at Rancho Luna and did that. And so the thing was we'd sort of turn up somewhere and then just try and hustle the local talent into coming and being on our record. So, yeah, yeah we did the fourth album in New York and I'm not sure if it even came out as a Mutants record really, but Chris and I just decided then that we wanted to start a new project, which is 1000 Motels, which um, the album's out now on Cleopatra. It's uh, download only. So yeah, that I really like the 1000 Motels. It's, it's such a good record. I, I like listening to it. Is there a track from that you'd want to play? Yeah, there's one called Andy's Wonderworld, yeah. which I really like, which features my mate from the desert, Sean Wheeler, doing the vocal. I don't know. I, I like the album, but that's the one I always say because it's got Sean on it and he's such a great character. <laughs>
It's definitely worth asking you about your your solo album from a couple of years ago, PhD. Yeah. One of uh, my favourite tracks off that is Rats Opus, just because it's it's got a bit of that damned feel where orchestral mm-hmm. mid eighties element to it as well. Was that something that you were aiming for? Um, that again was technology based because we had an emulator, right? And we'd use that on Eloise, and I had it round at my house for some reason, and I just remember coming up with the chords and then just sort of layering things and it just ending up as this big, <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it really, but it was bigger than I meant it to be. And then I was, again, I, I was out in California and my mate Robbie Allen, we were there and he, he's a great singer. So I just said, yeah, Robbie, you know, you know all about heartfelt passion, Give, you know, <laughs> knock some lyrics up for this. So he did. So that was how it sort of came about. But, you know, inspiration comes in many forms and something like a keyboard and a sound can be enough, as in that case, to trigger that whole track. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's how most of my songs start. It's just one thing. An idea. Yeah. Well, just, oh, I could do a track that sounds like, I don't know, I don't know like Pink Floyd, you know. And, mm. and then you just sort of start tinkering with it and sort of aim at that. But... You know, there's a lot to be said for a lack of ability because you not being a, a real guitarist or keyboard player, I, I find that the things I play aren't things that guitarists or keyboard players would play. Most of it's either with two strings or two fingers. It's just... <laughs> so I find that if I've got some idea and I'm working on it and I'm sort of making it bigger, and I'll maybe find something that isn't planned that's just happens to work. And that's sort of, you know, I'll take that. <laughs> Hey, hey. 
another collaboration of yours is uh, the Sinclairs. Mm. Is it you and Billy Shimbone? It certainly is. Yeah, that's um, my pet project at the moment. We've, we made the album Sparkle, I don't know, I guess about a year ago now. Yeah. I've known him for a long, long time. He used to, in 96, I think it was, when I quit the damn it, I opened a small recording studio underneath Q Bridge. And he came in one day and just sort of said, how much time can I have for 100 quid? And then he was still there two and a half years later. First of all, he's one of the nicest human beings on the planet. Secondly, he's one of the most talented writers I think I've ever come across. And he was very um, tight with being his first band, Flipron. It was very... um, organized you know he had all the, the lyrics laid out he knew all of the arrangements he's one of the only people i've ever worked with who insists on writing an ending for a song <laughs> as opposed to fading out a track you know he's kind of and so part of that was a bit overblown in some and so when he said he wanted to make a surf punk album i was like mate let's have fade outs let's you know let's take all of that pressure off of having to construct let's just get a bit random mm. and so we put some sort of weird synth noises and bass pedals and got some mates in to do theremins and, and managed to sort of make a, a pleasantly unnerving album I think yeah because it's, uh, it's uh, the sewers of uh, Carcassons on there which is quite um, evocative as well that's yeah. one of the the tracks on there that, that really stands out oh right okay cool yeah well you know that's all that sort of grail hunting thing that I get up to in my spare time. And Karkistan's one of the nicest cities anyway. It's, you know, it's medieval and there's, it's, it's just very entertaining, you know, so you can... Yeah, there's a book, isn't there? Is there, is there, is there, is there... Rats, Gabies and the Holy Grail, yes. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> it's, out of, it's out of print now. But that was, you know, that was a great thing to do, you know, when... The, damned you know when I stopped doing that it was I I sort of wanted it to be literary somehow but didn't really have the wherewithal to write a book and Chris Dawes lived opposite me and I was talking to him about the grail hunting and stuff and he just didn't really he hadn't heard of the story or any of the stuff and he just just got more and more hooks the more he heard then he was talking to his agent one day who said you should write all this mad shit down push <laughs> <It> was... <laughs> so uh, so he did and and again I, th- I think we were very lucky with our timing because i think the publishing world knew the da vinci code was coming ours was a it's not an academic book it's written in plain english but all the all of the factual stuff in it is absolutely right or certainly was at the time so we you know we kind of got enough of an advance to go and muck about in france and up and down to scotland and you know it was quite exciting because you know Hmm. you suddenly find yourself in a chapel and then it was a room full of knights templar who had supposedly been wiped out and didn't exist anymore. I mean, now, you know, there's Templars all over the place. But then when we were writing the book, they they weren't supposed to exist. So to suddenly see swords and cloaks and candles and the whole thing was like, blimey, you know, that's a secret society over there, you know. So 
that you know that was just one of the things that sort of happened so it, it was really good for me to be seen in another light rather than just a sort of mad drummer it was a nice change I thought it'd be good to play a, a, a new single of, of yours, and that's uh, the, the track "Nothing Else Matters" that, that you did with Lemmy. Oh right! What was the, yeah. the spark of uh, covering that with uh, Lemmy? Was it was it your idea to to do that? No, no, it wasn't. It was um, I just mixed um, 
Bob Calvert song called Lord of the Hornets. Oh, yeah. And I just did a remix version of that for a, a Cleopatra Records in California who liked what I'd done with it. And I suppose part of the Hawkwind connection and the fact I was mates with Lemmy and them. And they had the files for the tune of Lemmy doing the vocal, but not much else really. And so they said, could I do anything with it? And so I fixed the instrumentals on it and changed it to anything that didn't sound like Metallica, you know, so everything sort of, there's no electric guitars, it's all keyboards and double basses and things like that. And it really works well with Lemmy's voice because it's almost, I don't think he was very well when he did it, but there's a real sort of emotion in his vocals. So that, you know, it was kind of nice to work on. Mm. I think he'd have liked it. I hope he would have liked it. You knew him in, in the, the sort of early years of the dam, didn't you? Well, originally, Brian and I were going to ask him if he wanted to be our bass player. Because wow. we all used to drink in the same pub in Portobello Road. And um, I think Phil Taylor was in jail for something at the time. <laughs> and uh, Lemmy, bless him and his loyalty, said Motorhead aren't doing anything until our drummer comes back. And so he'd always be in... Um, Hennekeys, I think the pub was called. You'd always be in there playing the slots. <laughs> and me and Brian would sit there with our pints and we'd look at Lemmy's back and his bullet belt. <laughs> and um, Brian sort of knew that Lemmy was kind of a bit more MC5 and a bit more Pink Fairies and a bit more alternative than the usual kind of 9 year hippie. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, we sat there and it was like, well, should we ask him? You know, do you think he'd want to do it? And, it was like, well, I don't know, you know, he's a lot older than us, isn't he? You know, it was that sort of thing. And, you know, so we never did. But we, we did get to know him eventually. Mm. And he, he, we did quite a lot with him with The Damned on and off and hanging out and occasional gig and, you know, just going, meeting up with him at Dingles and getting drunk and standing up. That was the thing. <laughs> I never saw him in a mess. Very interesting. I mean, I'd be with him for like days, you know, we'd do a festival and you'd go to bed and come down in the morning and then you'd still be in the machine with a, <laughs> you'd have gone to bed with half a bottle of vodka and you come back and it'd just be, you know, nearly empty. And, but I never ever saw him falling over drunk or off of it, you know, or chewing the side of his head off. It was kind of, he had this constitution that really, mm. I don't know, maybe just got really out of it when he was 18 and just stayed that way. <laughs> but, yeah, no, Lemmy, I miss him. They don't make people like that anymore, do they? No, no, they don't. A one-off. And, yeah. It's very strange, you know, like with Bob Calvert as well, you know, you work with a person. Yeah. And I'm working with a vocal, so you're kind of like, it's an incredibly personal, you know, it's, you're hearing and breathing. And, you know, it's a, Weird one, but suddenly there's a voice on a channel that you're not expecting, and it just suddenly comes out. And now you're like, Whoa! <laughs> it's almost as if you've been spoken to from beyond the grave. Mm. So, basically, as, as we've covered here, there's so many different projects that have just come out or working on. So, yeah, and another band. Um, 69 Cats I've just done an album and that's also coming out on Cleopatra soon and 
Professor of the Madman, Sparkle. There's another 1,000 Motels album with a lot of Sean Wheeler on, which is at the moment called the Memphis album, which is like a soul record, where we got this um, Memphis church choir doing all of the hallelujahs and stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to that coming out. Um, so yeah, I, I've just got I've just got a ton of stuff going on. I'm really, really touched with. I'm really, you know, really grateful and lucky. It's uh, you know, in the days of lockdown and everything else, I feel really quite privileged to be able to still be, you know, working on projects without. Thanks to technology. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's. Uh, I'd like to be a Luddite, but actually I, I kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so good to talk to you and uh, re- really cover a, a wide range of material, not just The Damned, but Professor and the Madman and, and some of the other projects that you've worked on over the year, years. And uh, it's great to have the, the stories and also remember Lemmy. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's funny, I, I try and avoid nostalgia in doing an interview, but this one I haven't been able to avoid it. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. Cheers. Then. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye.
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.